What does the Bible say about the difference between the soul and the spirit of a person? We'll find out right after Crosswalk on this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. What you have or want materially can keep you from what you can be spiritually and what you can have eternally. Material possessions, having nice clothes, living in a nice home, having plenty of money in our bank account. Most of us desire those types of things in life, and if we have those things, as a Christian, we usually attribute them to the blessings of God. Most of us would agree that there's nothing wrong with having things, but what happens if those things become a roadblock in our walk with Jesus? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it? And we do this. Come on. Don't we, don't we so focus on the material that we completely miss the spiritual? What we think is good, Jesus apparently thinks is pretty much a total waste of time. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to this week's Crosswalk. Well, we've come to the seventh letter to the seventh church in our series entitled The Revelation. Pastor Clay is taking us on a year-long journey through this last book of the Bible. And if you've been with us throughout this study, you know that Jesus has some strong words for His church in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, but none stronger than His rebuke of the church at Laodicea. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It was a wealthy city, and the church had prospered there as well. But they had been deceived into thinking that they didn't need anything from God. They thought they were rich and in need of nothing. But when Jesus looked at them, he saw a very different picture. We're glad you've joined us this week. Now here's Pastor Clay's message. Today is uh, a semi-milestone. We are, have arrived at the seventh church um, in the study, in our year-long study through the book of Revelation. We've arrived at the seventh letter to the seventh church of Asia Minor that Jesus has been writing to. Remember, I've said this all along, I'll keep saying it because y'all only listen about half what I'm saying probably. Um, it had application for specific church in that 2,000 years ago. This church on the, on, in the province of Asia Minor within the Roman Empire, uh, it, it had application for that church. But those churches represent the church age throughout. From, from the time Jesus went back to heaven until the time Jesus comes back. I'm hoping it's pretty soon, quite honestly. Um, uh, in between there is what's referred to as the church age, the age in which the church exists, in which it was birthed and, and grown up and, and hopefully is, is, is being used by God to build his kingdom, lead other people into relationship with him. That those churches that Jesus wrote to through John the Apostle, that, that it, it's application for all of us. The churches back then had issues. And if you read those letters... And if, as you've been reading these letters, if you've been walking through this series with us, you read those letters, it is clear that Jesus uh, realizes that these churches have some issues that they need to deal with. And so if those churches represent all churches through the ages and, and the issues that can come into our churches, and I'll clarify that in just a moment, uh, then, it, then it stands to reason that he would also expect there to be some, some changes in, in our church. 
If, if some of those characteristics of those seven churches show up, then we'd have every reason to expect that Jesus is saying to them and to us, hey, here's, what's, here's what I see is going on. Remember, we've discussed every one of those letters. He starts out with this idea, I know. And he uses that phrase that means I have complete, total, intimate knowledge of your situation. And so he's, he's saying, if, if there's an issue, it needs to be dealt with in the church. I said this last week, I'll say it again. Remember, when we talk about the church, when we say the church, you have to think, first off, don't think building, think body. You have to think corporately, the church, okay? You know, what's Jesus, are, we, are there some things as a church? And you have to think personally. We are the church. I am the church. We are the church. Ronnie is the church. We, you understand what I'm saying? You have to think both ways. You have to think collectively, corporately, but you also need to think personally. As you read these letters, you have to remember Jesus is talking to you, and he makes it personal at, he, at the end of each one. Remember when each one at the end, he says, he, meaning the individual, if you have an ear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, just to summarize, just because I want to, uh, just get, get bring you a, a quick summarization of the six previous churches that we've looked at. I know you probably uh, would appreciate that. You might want to write it down. If you take notes, there is an outline on the back of your information sheet. You've also got a little flip-up desk there if you want to use that. Um, uh, let, let's walk through these uh, previous six churches. First church we started back a number of weeks ago was Ephesus. Ephesus was the passionless church. Uh, as Jesus puts it, you've, you've left or you've lost your first love. That, that, that feeling, that motivation, that, that when you first came into a relationship with Christ and you're just so deeply in love with him. And, and he talks about the fact, Ephesus, man, they were doctrinally solid. They were busy working for him, but, but it was empty. It was hollow. It didn't ring true as far as Jesus was concerned. Ephesus was the passionless church. You and I need to be careful of that. We need to, we need to monitor what, what's our passion level toward God. Second church we looked at was Smyrna. Smyrna was the fearful church. Now, Jesus really didn't have too much bad to say about Smyrna. He really didn't have anything bad to say about Smyrna. But he does say to them, do not be fearful. Or in, in the original language, it literally reads, stop being afraid. So there's an implication that they were kind of cowering back in, in the face of the persecution that was coming against them. So they were kind of the fearful church. And you and I have to be careful of that. And we know what it is to be fearful and how we... Uh, how we need to walk by faith. The third and fourth church were Pergamum and Thyatira. They were the compromising churches. They compromised on their theology. They compromised on their doctrine. They compromised on their belief system. And as a result, and this will always be the result, ladies and gentlemen, given enough time, this will always be the result. If you compromise on what you believe, it will affect your, your, your life. It'll affect your morality. It'll affect your decision-making process. It'll affect, it'll affect everything. They'd compromised under perhaps pressure, under influences of the culture around them. They had become the compromising churches. Sardis was the complacent church. Sardis wasn't being persecuted. And they're like, hey, let's leave well enough alone, you know. Mi casa, you casa. I don't know what that means, but uh, I, I'm okay. Let's just all get along here and, and we'll be all right. And let's not rock the boat. We don't mean let's not hold try and get this Jesus word out because they're really not messing with us. So they just kind of become complacent with where they 
were. And then the church we looked at last week, Philadelphia, the faithful church. Jesus had nothing bad to say about the church at Philadelphia, only things that were good. And he said, Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia, they were being faithful to what God had called them to. They were being faithful um, in their walk with the Lord. So those are the six previous churches, which now brings us to the seventh church, Laodicea. What's going on in Laodicea? Well, let me answer that question by starting it with a story. There's a, a famous story, most of you have read it or heard it or heard of it, by uh, a man named Hans Christian Andersen. The name of the story is The, the, uh, the Emperor's uh, New Clothes. How many of you are familiar with the story, The Emperor's New Clothes? Very old story. The emperor uh, was a very wealthy man, of course, and the emperor uh, loved to spend all of his time uh, showing off his new clothes. The emperor loved new clothes. And he would, he would, he would ride in his carriage and, and he would go to the theater and he would go anywhere that would be a public place so that he could show off his new clothes because he loved new clothes. I like, I like clothes. I like new clothes. I mean, it's a nice thing. The emperor, he really loved new clothes and he spent a great amount of the kingdom's fortune and a great amount of his time acquiring and wearing new clothes. Well, these two swindlers came to town in the story who uh, pretended to be tailors. They pretended to be clothing uh, makers. And they had heard of the emperor, the king's love for uh, beautiful clothes, and they had also heard of his pride and his ego. And so they approached the king, and, and they said, uh, I'll tell you what, here's what we'll do. Uh, we're going to make you a special set of clothes. We're going to make you some new clothes that are unlike any other clothes in all of the kingdom, in all the, in all the realm. Nobody has clothes like these. They are the most beautiful, the most dazzling colors. Oh, you, you, you will stand out and everyone will, will just be in awe of the beauty of your clothes. They said, as a matter of fact, these clothes are so special. This material is so special that we're going to build these, make these clothes out of that the material is actually invisible to anyone that is not, as, as the story goes, that is not worthy of their position or, as An, uh, Hans Christian Anderson puts it, or is stupid. <laughs> if you're not worthy of your position or if you're stupid, you won't be able to see these clothes. But they are the most beautiful clothes. They will be. And the king, in his pride and his ego, said, I must have these clothes. And he ordered the manufacturing of these clothes. And money was no object. And he threw a significant amount of money at these two swindlers. And day after day, they pretended to sew. And they pretended to stitch. And they, I don't know how you do, I don't want to stitch. But, and they pretended to cut. They pretended to measure. And the day finally arrived when they uh, some, were summoned into the emperor's presence. And they said, emperor, uh, we have your new clothes ready. And they they imaginarily brought in these clothes and they said, what do you think? Well, of course, the emperor couldn't see anything because there was nothing there. But fearful that he would be seen as unworthy of his position or stupid, the emperor began to say, oh, they're magnificent. I've, I've never seen anything like it. They're the most beautiful clothes in all the, in all the world. The emperor's court, obviously not also not wanting to be considered unworthy of their position or, good, <laughs> I want to see if y'all are with me. Um, also, wow, this, 
king, this is, un- this is unbelievable. Look at these things. I've never seen anything like it. You'll be the most majestic leader and emperor in all the world. This is incredible. And so the, the emperor in his pride and his ego convinced himself that it must be true. And, and so he, he undressed and he allowed the, the, these two swindlers to uh, imaginarily put the clothing on him. And then uh, the king went out on the street for a parade that was given in his honor to show off his new clothes. And, of course, the people lining the streets who had also heard of this special material, not, also not willing to or wishing to be considered unworthy of their position in life or, you're getting there, ooed and awed and exclaimed with, Oh, my goodness, the emperor, look at the emperor in his clothes. This is unbelievable. A little boy in the crowd, hadn't got the memo about these uh, clothes that were so magnificent that it was invisible if you weren't worthy. He hadn't gotten that memo. And so the little boy exclaims, why, he isn't wearing anything at all. And before long, some of the other people in the crowd began to to join in and say, you know, the kid's right. He's not wearing any clothes. He doesn't have any clothes on. And the king began to overhear this. But the king, not willing to, to face the shame and the embarrassment of, of, of this humiliation and what he had done, continued to strut, nothing but his birthday suit on, but continued to just, to just act as if he had on the most beautiful clothes in the world. Now, that may seem like a strange way to to start off a look at the church at Laodicea, but in fact, it is quite applicable because the church at Laodicea, like the emperor, was deceived. Laodicea was the deceived church. We're going to look at it in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, um, beginning in verse seven or uh, 14. The angel, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write... The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. It's a common phrase in these letters, isn't it? Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my, with my father on his throne Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seventh church, Laodicea. Laodicea was about 40 miles east of Ephesus, the first city that we looked at in this study. And about 40 miles, as I understand it, southeast of Philadelphia, the church that we looked at last week in our study. Laodicea was a... uh, 
was a, a banking hub, a financial hub for, for all of that region of, of Asia Minor. It, uh, it had become wealthy uh, due to a, uh, a, a, a special black wool that they produced there, and the, and the clothing, obviously, and, and carpets and things like that that would be produced from that wool. So they become quite wealthy uh, as a result of that. There was also a, a medical school there that uh, was quite well known and, in fact, uh, produced an eye, an eye medication, an eye salve, that was known throughout the, uh, the empire for, uh, for the good that it could do to your eyes. It was a wealthy, well-to-do, well-off city, Laodicea was. And Jesus introduces himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The Amen. It's a, it's a Hebrew phrase. It's actually transliterated just over into English, Amen. Uh, you, you'll hear amen said sometimes in church, right? So you, somebody, some preacher from time to time will say something, you know, really powerful or really that strikes a chord with somebody, and you might occasionally uh, hear somebody say amen. What they're saying is, that's right. I agree with that. As I said the word is Hebrew, amen. It actually means the truth. It literally means the truth. Jesus introduces himself as the truth to the church at Laodicea. The church at Laodicea needed the truth. They were being deceived into thinking that they were, that they were okay with God, that things were good, and that, that because they were wealthy, they, they had need of nothing, and they were being deceived. And Jesus says, you need the truth, the, the, the amen, the, the faithful one, the, the, the true witness. By the way, uh, this, this phrase that Jesus uses, that he's the amen, in uh, Isaiah chapter 65, I think it's verse 16, it's one of the names that God uses of himself. So Jesus, in essence, is calling himself God when he uses this phrase. Uh, that may not be that big a deal to you, but there are false religions out there that try to teach that Jesus was, was never really claimed to be God. This is just one, in, one instance where he does. And he also introduces himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this we need to spend a little time with. Because, again, there are false religions out there that that use this text to teach that Jesus, in fact, is not quite the same as God. That Jesus, as as God the Son, was created. Because it says right there uh, in verse 14 that he's the beginning of the creation of God. So we're going to spend a little time on that. The Greek word is arche. You can probably imagine we get our word archaic from it. Arche. Um, and it, it has this idea or this meaning of, of head or source, really, is what it, what it means. Now, let me say this. It can mean the, 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 the meaning that we tend to think of first. We would tend to think of, when somebody would, would say the beginning, we would think of the start, the start of something. It can mean that. But it also can mean the head or the source. And only the context can tell you which one that it actually means. Well, in the context of Revelation chapter 3, Jesus in the same verse has just referred to himself as God by using one of the names of God. Throughout these letters, he has used terms to apply to himself that would only apply to God. Not to mention all the other verses that seem to uh, either expressly or uh, by implication uh, say that Jesus was God. So, Jesus is the head. He's the, he's the alpha. He's the omega. 
He's, he's the beginning. He's the head. It's a title applied to his name. Colossians uh, chapter 2 and verse 10 says this. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. He's the head of his church. So it's not referring to beginning as in he was created. He was the first thing created by God. No. He's the head. He's the head of the line, so to speak. As I said, it also can mean the source. Jesus also is the source of everything that is created. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Because by him everything was created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's the source of the creation of life. Whoop-dee-doo! Why does Pastor Clay go on and on about that stuff? I don't even care about the beginning of the creation. Let me tell you why I go on and on about that kind of stuff. Number one, because one of the lessons that I personally have learned from this study through these seven letters, one of the lessons I personally have learned is that Jesus cares about what his church is taught. Several times you've heard me say this, theology matters. And he is holding the pastors and the teachers of the church accountable for what is being taught in the church. He is full aware of what they're being taught, and he cares about what they're being taught. So you may not think it's a big deal to you, but God is holding me accountable. So there you go. (laughs) Another reason I take time to do this is something that I referred to earlier. Because this, if you don't know what you believe or why you believe it, I promise you, if you don't know what you believe or why you believe it, you're going to go down a road you don't want to go sooner or later. I honestly go on about some stuff sometimes that whether you realize it or not is for your benefit because you need to understand and know what you believe, why you believe it, so that you can stand firm when uh, Tim Miner told me some, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on his door uh, this weekend. We know that's going to, those things there. We know there's people that we work by that have different belief systems and we need to understand. And somebody says, well, how come you believe this? Well, I don't know. I, that's just what that preacher told me. Or that's just, I, you need to know why you believe what you believe. So, so it matters for that reason. He is the beginning. He's the head. He's the source of the creation of God. And he says this. Now listen to what he says. Oh, by the way, as we, <laughs> as we read verse 15 and 16, Jesus apparently does not subscribe to that old adage. Y'all know that old adage? Well, if you can't say, y'all's mom ever say this? Well, if you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything at all. Jesus apparently does not subscribe to that belief because uh, he doesn't have anything good to say about the church at Laodicea as he didn't have anything good to say about the church at Sardis, but he got plenty to say. Let's read it. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, but I, I wish that you were cold or hot, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Wow. Now, let me give you the popular interpretation. The popular, conservative, evangelical interpretation of verse 15 and 16. The most common interpretation is this. That Jesus is referring to cold, meaning the people that don't have a relationship with God. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. Not only do they not have a relationship with Jesus, they don't care about having a relationship with Jesus. They are, they are so distant from him, they're completely cold. The other end of the spectrum are the hot people. 
They are hot-hearted for God. They're in right relationship with Him. They're serving Him and desiring to serve Him and desiring to know Him and desiring to grow in Him. And they are hot-hearted. In between are the lukewarm people who have, by that interpretation, who have apparently perhaps made some sort of profession of faith in their life, but there is no evidence of it in their life. There's no, there's no seeming uh, uh, passion in their life for the things of God. Quite honestly, commentators seem split on whether the lukewarm people are saved or not saved. If they're actually more towards the hot side or more towards the cold side. Let me say this first about that interpretation. There's nothing wrong with that interpretation. Matter of fact, my interpretation kind of arrives at the same conclusion. But there's nothing wrong with that interpretation. As, as they would say in the old days, that'll preach. Uh, because you can say, there it is right there, man. You, 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 y'all better get with it. Y'all, y'all lukewarm people, better, <laughs> better get with it. Because Jesus would rather you were cold. He would rather you not even know him as Savior. He'd rather be completely cold. Because at least if you're cold, you know it. And you won't be living a lie. That'll preach. And and let me say this. It's true. That's absolutely true. Jesus, God would not desire for us to live a lie. Act one way or say one thing, but actually our life portrays something. He doesn't want us living a lie. That's for sure. But I, I don't. I don't exactly, oh, and let me say this too about cold people, meaning spiritually cold. I think it's also true that the people who are the farthest from God are the people who are usually the most aware of it and the most willing to admit it. I've talked to some rough people before, and they say, yeah, I'm law, I'm going to bust hell wide open when I get there. They usually say, I'm going to have a big party with my pals when I get there. But, but people that are that cold, that far from God, they're usually the most acutely aware. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I don't have anything to do with God that it's the lukewarm people that that are difficult to to get them to understand that that you're not there yet nothing wrong with that interpretation my interpretation of this text is perhaps a little different although like I said I kind of arrive at the same conclusion Laodicea I told you where it was you saw where it was on the map the two closest towns to Laodicea were Heropolis and Colossae Aren't you glad I told you that today? Heropolis and Colossae. Heropolis was known for its hot water springs. It, it, it was famous for it. People would come from miles around to bathe in and to drink the hot water springs of Heropolis because they believed that there were, that there were healing properties in the water, there, that it had medicinal purposes. And so they, they would flock to Heropolis to bathe in their hot springs. Colossae was known for its... Cold mountain springs that came up out of the ground. Fresh, clear, crisp, thirst-quenching water. And it was known for getting a drink from Colossae and how delicious the water was. In between Colossae and Heropolis was Laodicea. Anybody want to guess what the water was like in Laodicea? Lukewarm. And Jesus, throughout these letters, has continually gone back to characteristics of the particular city or the town to bring out spiritual truths. I think what Jesus is saying is this. You make me sick. In, in, in verse 16 there, where it says, uh, I will spit you out of my mouth. It literally reads, I'm about to vomit. You make me sick. You make me want to throw up. Now, sorry, in case there's somebody out there saying, well, I just don't like that. 
I don't, I, don't like, I don't like him presenting my Jesus like that. My Jesus is a God of love and, and, and forgiveness, and, and my Jesus would never, would never talk that way. No offense. But this ain't Talladega Nights, and you and Ricky Bobby can call him sweet baby Jesus all you want. But he outgrew the cradle. He walked a sinless life. He went to a cross. He died for our sins. He rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven, and he's coming back again to set up his kingdom. And if you haven't learned anything at all throughout this study so far, you should have learned this. There's a new sheriff in town. And he may have come the first time meek and lowly. He may have come the first time uh, humbling himself and allowing men to, to spit in his face and, and pluck out his beard and, and nail him to a cross. But he's coming back to judge the world. We're going to see that in just a few weeks. He's coming back to judge the world. But before he does, he's got a word for his church. And the word is this. For the love of God, wake up. You can't continue to walk down this road. Wake up. Get with it. Straighten up. And look what he says. Here's the reason that he says, man, you, you just... You're not good for anything. Cold water was good for something. Hot water was good for You're not good for anything. And here's what he said. Here's why. Look at verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Interesting phrase that Jesus, interesting term, words that he uses there. How he ends there with, with poor, blind, and naked. Now let's see, what was Laodicea known for? Banking, ISAV, medication, black wool, manufacturing of clothing. The church at Laodicea was prospering materially, financially. They were doing well. And they had apparently come to this place where they had convinced themselves that they must be okay with God. They must have the hand of God upon them because look how good they're doing. Look at how, man, the offering plate's full. <laughs> look at how we, we, we're, we've got nice houses now. We're wearing the finest clothing. Look, God must be okay with us. And Jesus is saying, you're not even close. The church at Laodicea was missing it because they said, we've got everything we need. And Jesus is saying, you don't have anything you need. They were saying, we're We're rich. And Jesus was saying, you're flat broke. They were saying, we can see it so clearly. And Jesus was saying, you can't see it all. They were saying, we're dressed in the finest clothing. And Jesus was saying, you're naked. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it? And we do this. Let, come on, let's bring it back. Let's fast forward it 2,000 years. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we, don't we so focus on the material that we completely miss the spiritual? What we think is good, Jesus apparently thinks is pretty much a total waste of time. Because they were so focusing on, on what they had that they were missing what they could have, which is, in my opinion, the BP squared for today, the big picture biblical principle, and it is this. What you have or want materially can keep you from what you can be spiritually and what you can have eternally. Thank you. When we focus on the things of this world, I am preaching, aren't I? I'm preaching here. When we focus on the things of this world, and all of us do it, and when we do it to the extent that it pulls our focus off of God and it pulls our trust in God away. See, that's what, that's, we, we don't, basically, they would never say this just like we would never say. They would never say, we don't need God. They would, if somebody said that out loud in church, they, they'd say blasphemy, but they're all living that way. They're all living like they didn't need God. 
we don't, we don't need anything. We're, we're good. He says, you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. You're missing it, guys. You're missing it. Now, real quickly, um, let me just bring out verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He said, repent, repent, repent all throughout these seven letters. But he kind of clarifies in verse 19. He says, listen, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I care about you. I didn't give a rip about you. I just let you live your life, have your material possessions. And then when you die and go into eternity, then what will you have? Then where will you be? Then what difference will it make in your life? But oh, how we focus on the here and now. Now listen, I, I understand that. That, that probably puts me in conflict with a lot of preachers, a lot of preachers today that promote, you know, this, just everything. Oh, you're, you can have everything and you can all. Years ago, I saw this TV show, uh, movie. I can't remember. The, I was just vaguely recalling details of it. And I remember seeing this movie one time where this guy, this wealthy guy, owner of some big corporation or something, was lost at sea. He, he, his ship sank or capsized or he fell overboard I can't remember but he's like lost he's like five miles from shore he can see it but it's like way off there so he begins to swim and as he begins to swim he begins to pray swimming will tend to make you do that and uh, when you're in deep water and and he begins to say uh God I know I've never really had a, a, a whole lot to say to you or a whole lot to do with you, but if you'll get me out of this, if you'll let me get to shore I will give you everything that I own and, and, and I'll become a priest he begins to swim, and he swims, and he swims, and he swims. And, and, and as he gets a little closer, maybe he gets down to about four miles or so, he, he says, God, if you let me make it through this, I, I, I will give you three quarters of, of everything that I own. And, and, and God, I'll go to church uh, regularly all the time. I'll be there every time the, the doors are open. Kept swimming, and, and each time as he swam, he's got a little closer and a little closer. And as he prayed, his prayers began to get altered just a little bit and a little diminish a little bit more and diminish a little bit more. And, and by the time he reaches the shore, he, he crawls up on the shore. And he's, oh, God, thanks so much. I know I promised you 10% of my income, uh, but uh, I know you got everything uh, anyway. It all belongs to you, so if you don't want it, I'll just keep it anyway. There is a direct correlation between the crisis of the moment and our connection to God, isn't there? Tell the truth. When do you pray more? Yeah. When everything's hunky-dory, floating along, everything's good, bills are paid, kids are healthy, wife's happy. Is that when you pray most? Or is it in that moment of that crisis when you've just gotten word of of a job layoff or of of a person that's mad at you or uh, some sickness or whatever? Which, you see... That's why, that's why he says in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich. It was through the fire that the gold is refined. It's, it's in the fire where the impurities are, are burned off. You know what I think Jesus is saying? You need some adversity in your life that, for, for the church, for the life, for the people. You need, some, you need some hardship. You need some trials. You need some difficulty in your life. Oh, no, I don't want that. (laughs) And surely God would not want that for me. No, I don't know why God would want adversity in my life. Just because adversity seems to draw me closer to him and prosperity seems to cause me to wander off, I don't know why God would want to bring adversity into my life. I don't know why God would would allow hardships to come into my life. You, you, You need some stuff in your life. You need some uh, to be in a place in your life where you have to depend on me. And they, if, if it happened to them, would do the same thing we do. We'd be praying, 
God, get me out of this adversity. And God's, and God's saying, I'm trying to get you out of your apathy. I'm trying to draw you back to dependence on me and faith in me and walking with me. All right, we got to go. Got to wind this up. But uh, I, I just, I have to make a comment about verse 20. Uh, let me read it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Verse 20 uh, is interesting because it, it's been used, if you, if you come out of a church background or been in church very long, you know that verse 20 is, is classic verse used to, to try and lead a person to relationship with Jesus. Hey, hey, uh, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And, and by the way, that's absolutely true. But in the context of Revelation chapter 3, he's talking to his church. How tragic is it that the Lord of the church is on the outside? That, that was my first thought. When I, when I was reading this and I was saying, I thought, how tragic. I'm going to preach on that about how tragic it is that, that, that Jesus is outside of his own church. But then you know what I thought? How absolutely amazing is his love that he would stand and knock and wait for you and I to respond. And by doing so, he's saying, I'm not giving up on you. Sure, you've gotten off track. Sure, maybe you missed it. I will not give up on you. I care about you too much. I love you too deeply. I will not give up on you. And so I'm knocking. And if you'll open the door, if you'll, if you'll recognize where you are and you'll turn from that, you'll come, I will come in. It's intimate, deep, personal. I'll dine with you. I'll sup with you. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've heard today, Jesus has a very different value system than we often do. If we're not careful, we could spend too much of our time concerned about the temporal things and neglect the spiritual. Bank accounts will eventually be depleted. No matter how nice the clothes are, they won't last forever. And what the world sees as valuable actually has very little worth to God. This might be a good time for each of us to take stock of our lives and our value system. A good question to ask ourselves might be, do I worry more about the temporal things of this world than the eternal things? Jesus says the solution is simple. Trust Him for the things that really matter. The church at Laodicea was deceived into thinking their wealth was a sign that God was pleased with them. But as Pastor Clay reminded us today, they were only fooling themselves. That has great application for us today. Many churches today promote the idea that God wants to give you all kinds of material blessings. And if you have them, it's a sure sign that God is pleased with you. Certainly having nice things is not wrong, and God does bless us. But if we've learned anything today, God is much more concerned about our spiritual condition than our material condition. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Oh,
Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Interesting Q&A question. You know, people turn cards in every week. If you've not seen these yet, they're out there at the table. It says, what does the Bible say about? And then you can, you can write in there whatever. And, and every week people are turning those in. Well, this is a question that really I've had for a while, and I've just been dealing with other questions. But the question today is, what does the Bible say about the difference between the soul and the spirit of a person? You've probably always wondered that, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Some people have. Apparently, the person that filled out this card had. Now, um, what, what they're asking is, uh, are, uh, is there a body, soul, and spirit, or is there just a body and a soul slash spirit? That's what they're asking. Uh, if you were out at the seminary and they wanted to use big words, this is what they would, they would say. Is, is man bipartite or is man tripartite? Is he two parts or is he three parts. Well, uh, there's no sense in beating around the bush. There's no sense in, in, in putting it off. Might as well get straight to the answer. The answer is this. Beats me. I, 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 all right, then that's Q&A for today. No, no, not, no, I, I can't, I can't leave it at that. Um, and, and I'm not, and I, I'm not if, if the person's in here that filled out that card, I'm not downplaying that question. And it is, for some people, it's a very significant question. People really get passionate about this. No, we're, we're three parts. No, we're two. I mean, it's, it's interesting uh, when you get into it sometimes. I, I'm not diminishing the, the importance of it. I, I maybe don't hold quite as much importance to it as some people do. But l- let, me, let me just answer it as best I can. Um, let me give you a few verses, two, actually, that, that those who are tripartite, those that believe that we're three parts, body, soul, and spirit, some verses that they point to. The primary one is in 1 Thessalonians. It's chapter 5 and verse 23, and it says this. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul seems to refer to both the soul and the spirit in that verse along with the body. And then the other verse that's primarily used, uh, which I think generated this question when I used this verse a few weeks ago, is Hebrews chapter 4, that says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, personally, uh, this verse in particular, I, I think that's kind of a weak argument because what I really think uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the Word of God is able to distinguish between, between the material, the physical, and between the spiritual, that it's emphasizing that there's a distinction there. But uh, nevertheless, there is a, a listed there separately, soul and spirit. So those two verses are used, are used to say, you know, we're three parts and, you know, that's, that's what we are. Those that are... T- Two-parters, I don't know if that's a term, but I just made it up. Those that are two-parters, bipartite, uh, they would point to verses that seem to indicate that the word soul and spirit are used interchangeably at different times in Scripture. And I'll give you a couple of them uh, from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
Now, that, you could look at that and say, well, it seems like he's talking about the spiritual aspect of your life. So that, that seems like that would, might be spirit, but he uses the term soul. It seems to be used interchangeably. Then another one, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. That righteous man living among them day after day, uh, referring to Lot, uh, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So again, it seems like you could use spirit in there just as easily as you could use soul and and it would apply. So they would point to verses like that. And then there's even one more. Jesus himself said this in Luke chapter 10. Uh, He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. What's interesting about that, the word heart is cardia. Um, Clearly, anybody reading that even out of context, would understand that Jesus is not referring to the muscle within your body that pumps the blood through your body system. He's not referring to that. He's referring to the, to the innermost person that you are. Well, you mean your soul? Well, I don't know. He says soul there also. He, he, uses, he uses soul. Um, so you, he seems to, again, those terms seem to be used interchangeably. I, I know I flipped past them, uh, Will, but let me give you just the, the, the scriptural definition so you'll know. Uh, what they are. If you're referring to the word soul, the Hebrew word is nefesh, and um, it basically referred to a breathing creature or to life uh, in general is kind of what nefesh meant. The Greek phrase uh, is suke, which in ancient Greek also referred to breath or breath of life, but it eventually uh, came to be referred to as anything that had to do with the mind, uh, psychology, psychiatry, psychotic, uh, those types of words come from this uh, word suke. But it, originally, as best I could understand, its original meaning was breath or breath of life. So that's soul. Spirit, the Hebrew word is ruach. I can't say it like a good uh, Jewish person could, but the word is ruach, and it means wind or breath. And then the Greek word is pneuma, which is a, a, a current of air, wind, breath. And, of course, it's, it's pli- applied to uh, spirit. So you, you see even some interaction within the words there themselves. Uh, seriously, I, beats me. Uh, you know, which way for sure? You can make arguments either way. Uh, I, I don't think the Bible is real definitive about it, but I will tell you this. I tend to, me personally, because people always ask me, but yeah, but what do you believe? Uh, I tend to probably lean towards what's referred to more as a holistic position. And that is that, that I don't think there was ever any intention for there to be this, this separating, for us to think in, in terms of separate body, soul, and spirit, but that, but that we're this one entity that makes up who we are, whatever many parts that might be, but, but, but we're this, this holistic model. And while somebody might say, well, yeah, but we're, when we die, we're separated from our body. Yes, we are, but eventually that we get a new body, and so it all comes back together and works out in the end, and I'm so glad it does. So... Um, you can, you can choose whichever one you want. Uh, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying Scripture doesn't definitively, as, as best I can tell, define whether we're three parts, two parts, or really we're to be thought of as a whole. And that's Q&A for today.